Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. Your gospel is true. Your spirit is within us who believe. Your son is our standing place, the one who provided for us perfection that you have counted to us when we come, came to know him as our Savior. Thank you that we can celebrate the gospel, that we can sing praise to your name. And as we continue our worship in the word, we ask that you would direct us by your spirit, that we would humble ourselves before you and allow you to do your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. It is human nature to look for something bigger and better. Marketers are always trying to promote a new and improved formula for this product or that product. Electronics companies are trying to sell us a newer version of this or that that has these new features. You need this new iOS 10 operating system so you can send these cool text messages, blah, 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 and more blah. While these things are really no big deal, if uh, it's not difficult to download software to make your phone do this other thing, or if maybe you have tons of money and you can buy whatever this new product is that's going to revolutionize your life, great. Uh, there are some things that uh, simply can't be improved, however. Some things can't be improved. In fact, any attempt to improve upon some things actually destroys that which has already been established. For instance, the gospel cannot be improved upon. This is at the heart of Paul's communication here in the book of Galatians. There has arisen among the people a group of opponents that are trying to tell them to go back to a law system that would gain them some form of approval with God. And Paul constantly points them back to the gospel. We can't improve upon the gospel. The gospel cannot be improved upon. One writer, William Hendrickson, correctly penned these words. The Galatians, by yielding to this influence, had failed to understand that a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. If I could drive that little statement into your minds. A Christ supplemented, added to, he's great, but if you'll only supplemented, is a Christ supplanted, removed, distorted, changed, unfruitful. Yes, I just said unfruitful. If you add or change the message of who Christ is, that message will profit you nothing. It's a Christ supplanted. Paul speaks of the Galatians' advancement beyond the gospel as foolishness foolishness. There are three reasons that Paul gives in this text, three reasons that it is foolish to attempt to go beyond the gospel. Let's read the, the text again. We did read it responsively already, but verses 1 through 6 of Galatians chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now made perfect or being made perfect by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's the answer. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The first reason that we want to recognize as to why it's foolish to go beyond the gospel, to add to the gospel, to distort the gospel, to twist the gospel, is we have received the declaration of the truth. We have received the declaration of the truth. Now, before we dive into that, that point, I want for us to notice some odds that are stacked against the gospel. Odds that are stacked against the gospel. The, go- the gospel has these things that, that are up against it. First of all, sadly, the foolishness of men. The foolishness of man. The Bible tells us that the, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to non-Jews. We find ourselves to be really smart. We find ourselves to be capable of making great decisions about what's true and what's false. And one of the things you'll notice, we have arrived at a day and age, and it's been around for a while, where we are so enlightened that there really is not much that we can solidly say as a society that this is absolutely definitively true. We live in what's called a postmodern age where what's true for you is fine for you and what's true for me is fine for me, but your truth may not be my truth and my truth may not be your truth. And so we, we really sit in judgment of truth saying, well, I've learned this and so it's true. Or I've experienced this and so it's true. Or I feel this and so it's true. And if those are the criteria for truth, we have a real problem. Because you've learned things differently than I have. And you've experienced things differently than I have. And you feel things differently than I do. And therefore, there is no truth. Truth, friends, is not subjective. Truth is objective. It's true. And so one of the things that is stacked against the gospel in our day and age, as it was in this generation that Paul was writing to, that is, the foolishness of men gets in the way of God's revelation of truth. There's a second obstacle that is stacked against the truth of the gospel, and that is the deceitfulness of men. Deceitfulness of men. Whether that is ignorance of God's existence, which wouldn't necessarily be the context here in Galatians in the first century, ill-conceived ideas of who God is, that's a, real, that's a real issue. If you were to walk down the street and interact with someone on the side of the street and ask them, tell me, tell me about God, if they believe in him at all, they would start to describe this God. And they may describe him as this fluffy teddy bear in the sky who loves everybody and like doesn't hold anyone accountable. That's one conception of God. 
And then there's this other person you might come in contact with, and, and they'll say, well, uh, God is very, very demanding, and he's very harsh, and he can never be pleased. You've probably thought that at one point in your life, where you felt you were under the, the curse of God for one reason or another, because you really didn't feel you met his standard. Ill-conceived ideas of who God is really contributes to a problem that stacks against the gospel because we're deceived by this. Our own sense of self-worth oftentimes gets in the way of the gospel. I must somehow attain unto a certain level to please God. I must do these things because you can't just tell me that God did this all for me. I have to do something. If I don't do something, I won't feel like I've contributed in any way. That's the gospel. Ready? Let's just break it down. The gospel tells you what your contribution is. Ready? Your contribution is your sin. God's contribution is his son's self-willed sacrifice for your sin as he bore the condemnation for your sin and my sin. His perfect life, fully meeting every demand of the law, his death, burial, and resurrection, he is now seated at the right hand of God. He is the one that holds us in place in a right standing with God. Our contribution to the gospel is our sin. God does everything else. Everything else. But that doesn't sit well with man. I have to do something. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. This is an odd. This is something that's stacked against the gospel. There's the foolishness of men, the deceitfulness of man. Many attempts have, have been made to counter the message of the gospel. And if you want to add on top of all of that, there's this other element that is stacked against the gospel, and that is the deadly or deathly, forces of hell. Paul brings this out a little bit. It, it's, it's kind of hidden in the word bewitched. Bewitched. It says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? One translation, and it's not a good translation, um, but one translation actually brings out the fullness of that term by translating it like this. Who put a spell on you? There is a witchcraft in that term. There is, there is something supernatural in that term. Who has cast a spell on you that you should vary away from the truth, essentially? The deadly forces of hell. You know, we, we know about this. We're familiar with the scriptures enough that that we know that Satan is an opponent of the truth. We recognize what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan wants to blind people's eyes. And I think in the first century, we have a, a real life, Example of that. Oh, foolish Galatians. Satan has bewitched you through men. Men brought the false teaching. Satan brought the corruption. You did the 
gullible believing of that which is anti-gospel. Oh, foolish Galatians. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 and following, and what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So in the face of these odds that are stacked against the gospel, Paul reminds the Galatians and us here in the 21st century, he reminds us of the foolishness of forsaking the gospel for something better. It is foolishness to do this. Why? Why is that? Well, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed or publicly portrayed as crucified. He essentially says to these believers, do you remember how vividly in your own mind as we describe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that you came to grasp your desperate need of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf? Do you remember how as, as you listened carefully to the depiction of Christ crucified, you could actually taste it and feel it and see it with your mind's eye? The word that he uses here, publicly portrayed, is prographo. Prographo. It's used three other times in our New Testament. Every time it's used, it has the idea of words that were written before in order to enable our understanding or preparedness. Words that were written before in order to enable our understanding or preparedness. And so what he says here, if we take those other usages in Romans 15, also in 1 Peter, if we take those, those usages of this term and plug it in here, what we're seeing is it was before your eyes that Jesus was communicated was written about, was portrayed in such a way that you would be ready for an attack against the gospel, such as the one that you're under. With such a vivid picture in your mind, how could you think to move past him? Not it. Not it. It's not moving past a message. When you move past the gospel, what we're doing is we're moving past Christ as if there's something better for us. Remember that every time you're tempted to add something to the gospel to make you more pleasing to God, when you add to that message, you're moving beyond Christ himself. Listen, our celebration of the Lord's Supper, which we do once a month, is designed to bring this reminder continually. Our spiritual lives are completely tied to the work of Jesus Christ. Not, not just one event that took place at how old you were. One day when you walked down an aisle, 
or you prayed a prayer, or you read a, a pamphlet, and it revealed the gospel, and you, you came to trust Christ. We're not just talking about that one singular event. Our relationship with God from then on is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. I am right with God right now, not based upon my salvation and having lived a, good, a goodly life since. My standing is right with God based upon Christ like that first day. And guess what? Tomorrow, my standing with God is based upon what Christ did. Not me, him. Next day, not me, him. The next day, not me, him. When I stand before my judge, Jesus Christ, one day, I'm not standing simply before my judge. I'm standing before my Savior. And my standing before him is based upon his very work. I won't stand there condemned. There is, therefore, now, <coughs> excuse me, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This condemnation is gone. Why? The gospel. It's foolish to move beyond the gospel, because to move beyond the gospel is to move beyond the declaration of God's truth for us. Secondly, it's foolish to move beyond the gospel because we have experienced the gospel. We've experienced the gospel. Look at verses 2 through 4 of Galatians 3. Let me ask you only this. Now, I, I find it funny. Let me ask you only this. Like, I'm going to ask you one question and you ask several. What are, you, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this like this? They're all related. They're all related. The answer keeps coming back the same. He's asking uh, layered questions, but the answer is always by faith. By faith. Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, where... <laughs> Last week, we spent a lot of time just looking at verse 3. So we're not going to you know, re-preach all of that material, just kind of recap it. At the entrance of the truth, we first receive the gospel. The gospel comes, and we, we realize the truthfulness of the gospel. We believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the process... The Spirit has given life. In the process, the Spirit seals us. The concept is God claiming ownership over us for all of eternity. He signs his name to us. This one is mine. We experienced the first fruits of the Spirit, where there's this, this joy unspeakable. We then experienced what it is like I hope, I hope you have. We experience what it is like to have the Holy Spirit of God bear witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Such is the case when, when the Spirit cries out in us and through us, Abba, Father. Where instead of us looking at God as this ogre in the sky who's ready to rain down judgment on us, we realize 
He has chosen us for himself and adopted us into his family. And instead of just being this this mere force out there that will judge us one day, he's called us into his very own family as his children, having begun by the Spirit. Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? No. Or by the hearing with faith. Hearing with faith. Have you experienced, the word suffer is a generic word that is so many times in our New Testament translated suffer because it's the way that it should be translated. But the word itself is a generic term. It doesn't necessarily mean suffer. It just depends on the context whether it means suffer. So the word suffer in verse 4 can be translated suffer as it is here. Or in this context, I think a better translation would be experienced. Because we're not suffering when we're receiving the Spirit. We're not suffering when the Spirit cries out from our spirit, Abba, Father. We're not suffering when we experience for the first time a God who unconditionally and forever loves us. That's not suffering, folks. That's experience. Have you, have you experienced so many things in, in an empty manner, if indeed it was empty, vain? No, no. We've experienced the gospel. The experience of the gospel is, is a realization of a God who loves and chooses and adopts and gives us life forever. We've experienced the gospel. Why would we move beyond it? And they did. And folks, sometimes we do. Sometimes we think, well, yes, I know that my whole relationship with God is based upon Jesus, but when I do this wicked bad thing, and I don't do this really goody-two-shoes thing, uh, he's got to be upset because he's holy. He is holy. But my basis before him is not my acts. My basis before him, my standing before him is based upon Christ's acts. Does that mean I don't care about doing what's right and what's wrong? No, that is absolutely foreign to anything that the Bible ever says, that I don't care about right and wrong. It's foreign. That's ungodly to think that right and wrong don't matter. The issue is, my standing before God is not based upon my deeds. The gospel is based upon Christ. It is foolish to move beyond the gospel. We've experienced the gospel. In addition to the foolishness of moving beyond the gospel because we've received this declaration of truth, and because we've experienced the gospel, it's foolish to move beyond the gospel because we must abide in the gospel. We, we have to abide there. It says in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's craziness. You can't, you can't perfect yourself by the flesh. Look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Well, he answers the question, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He asks this question in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And Paul answers this in other places as well. I want for us to turn to one of those locations, because it really drives home the point that we don't just, we're not just saved by the gospel. It's not like this one thing that happened, one you know, at one time, and then, then the gospel, okay, well, now I only use the gospel to tell other people about Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, we want to notice how the, the gospel 
is our entryway into a relationship with God, is our sustaining our relationship with God, and it is the absolute entrance into the eternal place with God. We call that glorification, the finishing of our salvation. So the beginning of our salvation, justification. The sustenance of our salvation, the working out of our salvation, we call that sanctification, the, the process whereby God has demonstrated that, that he is the one that is our Lord and Savior. And then the finishing of our salvation, glorification. All of those are from the gospel. All of them. Here in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says this, Therefore, what's that next word say? As. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, what does it say next? So walk in him. Just like you received him, so also walk in him. Why would we ever advance beyond what God tells us not to advance beyond? As you have received Christ Jesus, that's the gospel, so walk in him, that's walking in the gospel, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Were you made perfect by the flesh? Is that, is that possible? No. You began by the Spirit, continue by the Spirit. You began from the gospel, continue by the gospel. You could say it this way, you began by faith, you continue by faith. You want to use an Old Testament term to make yourself feel better? You begin with the fear of the Lord. You continue with the fear of the Lord. It's the same thing. God's message to us, while there is more revelation in the New Testament than in the Old Testament because there's, a, there's more, the message is the same. I am bringing a people for myself that will represent me. I am gathering a people to myself that will declare my glory. I am gathering a people for myself that will demonstrate my kingdom, not just in the future someday, but right now, here on earth. This is the call. Just as you began, so also you continue. Back in Galatians chapter 3, just for a moment. Verse 4, again, this concept of experience. Did you suffer or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The experience that is associated with receiving God's grace should not be ignored. I want you to think about this. Two, two ways in which the Bible conveys that we can have some taste of the gospel without a full embrace of the gospel. Remember the way, and Brian read this as we opened our service this morning, remember the way that Paul spoke to the Corinthians about continuing to believe the gospel. He said it was in the gospel that they stand. Without that assurance of clinging to the gospel, there is no assurance of eternal life. As soon as we think we've graduated and, and now we're, we're really smart people, and I can do this and this, and God will be pleased with me, we're no longer clinging to the basis of our condition and our position with God. As soon as we move beyond that, we have nothing, nothing to base our eternal hope on, which is why we abide. We abide in Christ, and we abide in the gospel. We abide by faith because to not continue in the faith, to not continue in the gospel, is to place ourselves on shaky ground. Now, you'll remember another 
illustration that the Bible uses, this time from the words of Jesus himself in the parable of the sower. An initial response to the gospel does not tell the whole story. It does not tell the whole story. Remember, someone, bad ground, and Satan comes and he plucks it away, and some goes on the stony, and there's this initial growth, and some goes among the, the, the thorns, and there's this initial growth. How's that story end? Not very well. The seed that goes on the good, good soil, well, there's various ways in which it demonstrates its fruitfulness. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But there's a demonstration of something. What is that? That's God's working. It is the gospel, and it is in the gospel that we're continually reminded that it is God, through Christ, who saves us. It is God through Christ who sanctifies us. It is God through Christ who glorifies us. It is not us working to obtain or maintain salvation, but God himself. So we look at a verse like verse 4 in Galatians 3. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Did you experience this first pangs, this first foretaste, this, this glorious experience? Ah, I, I see the truth of the gospel, but I never experienced it ever again. And we cling back to that day as if that saved me. This experience saved me. Folks, an experience doesn't save you. An experience doesn't unsave you. What saves us? Well, God saves us. He saves us. What is the demonstration of that faith, of that, that salvation? There's faith. Faith not in me. Faith in Christ. Faith in the, the word of God that speaks of the gospel of God. So faith a continuance of faith is what demonstrates a clarity that I am one of God's people. So, now in verse 5, he asks a, a similar question as far as what he's trying to get to, just a different illustration. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The word supplies is a is a word that really could be read, is supplying. It's a present, active participle. What it's saying is, does the one who is right now, and continually does, supply the Spirit to you, does he do that by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? And then he says, and works miracles among you. It's not worked miracles, it's a present, active Participle, and is working miracles among you. This is an interesting statement. Now, the word miracles comes from the Greek term dunamis. You've heard of that. It means power. In some places, like Hebrews chapter 2, it's talking about miracles. It's talking about signs that, that God brought to authenticate the message as the gospel went to new places and, and the, the, the new revelation was coming and the, the apostles were going forth and they were bringing this, this new revelation about Jesus Christ and the gospel to its a fuller declaration. God brought with them these accompanying signs and wonders that would authenticate the messenger. Hebrews chapter 2 uses this word dunamis. It's It's miracles. A sign miracle. However, that is not the only use of this term. It's used countless times in our New Testament, and many times it has nothing at all to do with a sign miracle. It always is about a miracle, though. 
Let's think about that for a minute. I think this is so very important. I try to bring this forth because I don't want us to ever forget. Let's look at a couple of passages, please. Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. It can either refer to this incredible supernatural sign that, that is the healing of someone or, or the, this gift of tongues where someone speaks in a, in a language that they didn't know before and someone hears in a language that is their tongue but they were speaking in a different language. Some, God is doing something supernatural and it authenticates the messenger. Or it can simply be another way that God supernaturally works. Here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, a very familiar passage, the term dunamis is used here. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's he saying? Well, when someone comes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's not because they, they really, you know, I've been seeking God all my life, and I finally found him, and I was saved. Wrong answer. A person comes to faith in Christ because of God's power. It's a supernatural work. Okay? Move on a little bit. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2. Now here Paul, he's talking about his ministry at Corinth and abroad and what he was trying to accomplish. And he essentially says, I didn't come to you as the most eloquent speaker and wowed you with it. I came with something else. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of what? The spirit and of... That was kind of weak. You were saying the word power. I'm going to say power, power, power. All right, let's try it again. Let's get a power, a power response this time. Ready? And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That was good. I like that. But it's his, his preaching with dunamis. Something supernatural taking place. Because of him? No. The Spirit and power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so we have the gospel comes and it comes with power. And God, God does this supernatural work of saving people. And then Paul goes forth with the gospel and he preaches and it's with power. This is good. There's supernatural work going on. Look a little further, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Begin, uh, just verse 8 and at this stop. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. The Bible says, For we do not want to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our... What's that word say? That's the word dunamis. That we despaired of life itself. Okay, so he's talking about a weakening of ourselves. A weakening of ourselves. We're losing dunamis. Okay, look a little further now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We already read verse 4. Or I referenced it earlier in our time. Verse 5 is where we'll pick it up. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. For, we, uh, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing what? Power belongs to God and not to us. If we followed this on and on in our study, what we want to come to understand is this. Any, any fruitfulness that comes from the Spirit comes only through the power of God. Let's take this home a little bit. We don't learn a list of fruit and their function and go forth with power of that knowledge and put that fruit demonstrating our expertise. Did you hear what I said? We don't learn a list of the fruit of the Spirit and how they function and leave with the knowledge of all these things and then because now we're experts, we go forth and we do this fruit of the Spirit. Just listen carefully. Ready? We forget this. I don't know why. I think it's a supernatural delusion. I'm serious. It's the fruit, ready, of the Spirit. Not the fruit that we learn, that the Spirit produces, and then we produce it likewise. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's His fruit. It's God's fruit. He demonstrates that fruit. How? Well, I've learned a lot in these years of my Christian life, and I've learned all the pitfalls, and I've learned all the good things, and I go forth, and I've learned to walk in these ways. Whose glory is being seen? Now, no one says it quite like that, but that's what they said. Who gets the glory when I, when I say, it's not me, it's him? It's about Christ. Listen, the Bible tells me that I grow corrupt. <laughs> that's not a happy thing to think of. Well, that's what he tells me in Ephesians chapter 4, that I, my flesh grows corrupt. Have you experienced God's work of producing fruit in you? If you have, brothers and sisters, that is because of a walk of faith. It's walking in the gospel. It's walking in the spirit. It's God's grace at work in your life. Head back to Galatians, one book to your right. Paul leaves no doubt about what it is that produces this supply of the Spirit and this working of miracles in our midst. Working of miracles, again, it could be that someone rose from the dead, okay? That, that is a legitimate translation of power or miracles there. I think the far more likelihood that Paul is getting at that when you see the fruit of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, when you see those things in your midst, that is a miracle of God. He's producing it. And how is he producing it? Not by the works of the law, but by hearing with faith. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We might like bigger and better things. I want a newer version of my truck. 
I want a newer version of my sneakers. I want a newer version of my iPhone. While there are advancements in technology that make these products better, or maybe not, there is no improvement on the gospel. I'll never get a better gospel. I'll never get a better way. Any attempt to improve the gospel is truly a distortion of the gospel and must be rejected. How do you enter the Christian life? By faith. How do you continue the Christian life? By faith. This continuance in the Christian life, by faith, is a continuance of the Christian life by the gospel. So my question for us, have you experienced the life that comes from God? Will you spend eternity with him? Will we continue in that faith that has brought us into that relationship? The gospel is the entrance, the sustenance, and the guarantee of life with God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. This gift is an unspeakable gift. For we know that we call it the gospel, but really what it's about is Jesus. It's about your son being robed in frail humanity, experiencing hunger and thirst, weariness. It's about your son who experienced rejection and still fulfilled every demand of the law. It's about your son who, for my sin, bore your wrath. It's about your son who hung and experienced anguish and agony and the pain of separation from you because of my sin. It's about your son who was buried and the third day rose again triumphant over my sin, triumphant over death and Satan. So we talk about the gospel, but we really, we really mean your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for who he is and what he has done and what he continues to do. Thank you that he resides within each one of us who know Christ and we reside in him at your right hand and we have an eternal inheritance in heaven because of him. Help us to rejoice in what you've done for us and never, never, never to try to advance beyond what you have done for it is perfect. In Jesus' name, amen.